the Jodcast to infinity and not much further beyond infinity because that's impossible. With Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, Samuel Leski, Tian Bezaitnot, Crispin Agar, Rocco Tepeda Aruita, Fiona Porter, Mariam Rashid and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, November 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Tian Bezaitnot and joining me in the studio today are Crispin Agar and Rocco Tepeda Aruita. Crispin, we've had before. Haven't Hello. Been on in a while, but uh, Roque is a new face in the studio. Do you want to kind of give an introduction to yourself and what you do around here? So I am a second year PhD student working on CMB foregrounds, and I do this as a part, as part of a project called the Sivant All Sky Survey. Nice. In the show this time, Mariam Rashid and Michael Ryan interviews Connor Smith about measurements of the CMB lensing. And Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogasanu, and Samuel Leski take a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, here's Fiona Porter with this month's news. In the news this month, a historic spacewalk, a water-carrying visitor passes by, and a new method of detecting black holes. To start us off, the first all-female spacewalk has been completed. On the 16th of October, Christina Koch and Jessica Mayer both NASA astronauts, made a spacewalk to perform repairs on the International Space Station. The spacewalk lasted about five and a half hours, and during their excursion, the astronauts removed and replaced a faulty battery on the ISS. This is routine maintenance for the space station, and it's hoped that eventually all female spacewalks will be just as routine. For now, though, it's still very imbalanced. Before this, only 14 women had performed spacewalks, compared to 213 men. It was originally planned that an all-female spacewalk would be completed in March, but this fell through as only one medium-sized spacesuit was available at the time, and it was postponed for safety reasons. Now, however, NASA are working on making their next generation of spacesuits more modular, making them better able to be worn by astronauts of all shapes and sizes. These are being prepared for the Artemis programme, which hopes to put the next man, and first woman ever, on the moon by 2024. Next, an interstellar visitor has been passing through our solar system and looks to be carrying water. Comet 2i Borisov is the second known interstellar object we've spotted in our solar system, after Oumuamua, which has been discussed in past episodes. Borisov is of particular interest as the path it's travelling shows it must have originated from deep space, allowing us to see how its properties compare to comets from within the solar system. Recently, it's been noticed that Borisov is showing oxygen in its spectrum, the most likely source for which is water breaking down into its constituent hydrogen and oxygen. While this isn't surprising, comets quite frequently carry water, This does make it the first source of interstellar water we've observed, and could provide insight into how water travels in space. Of particular note is that Borisov also shows cyanide in its spectrum, like solar system comets, and the ratio of water to cyanide has been established to be very similar between the two. It seems despite its far-off origins, so far Borisov isn't that different from the comets we've seen before. Borisov will reach its closest approach to the Sun on around the 8th of December, and is expected to remain visible until at least September 2020, so there's still time yet to find out more. Finally, a new method of looking for black holes has found its first candidate. Typically, black holes have been identified by observing stars orbiting around them, like the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A star, or more recently spotted emerging with another black hole by LIGO detecting their gravitational waves. This, however, biases the search, as more massive black holes are easier to detect this way than less massive ones. The new method relies on the fact that it's relatively common for stars to be in binary systems, with two stars orbiting each other. If one of the stars dies and becomes a black hole, it and its companion star still orbit each other, but the black hole no longer emits light. By tracking the change in an apparently single star's emission spectrum, it's possible to identify if it has an invisible black hole companion, as the star's light will be Doppler shifted as it orbits around the black hole. Recently, this method has identified its first black hole, and in doing so has shown it can find an entirely new class of black holes, low-mass black holes. 
The detected black hole is only 3.3 solar masses, far less than a typical stellar black hole, which tend to be between 10 and 100 solar masses, or those detected by LIGO, which have a typical mass of around 20 solar masses. This is actually quite close to the lower mass limit possible for black holes, which is believed to be between 2 and 3 solar masses. Any lower than that, and a dying star can't collapse into a black hole and instead becomes a neutron star. Using this method to identify more low-mass black holes will therefore open up an entirely new population to study, and might give us more insight into what happens at the boundary between black hole and neutron star. Thanks for that, Fiona Porter. Now, Jake Stubber Morgan interviews Connor Smith about measurements of CMB lensing. I'm joined this morning by Connor Smith, a PhD student who's visiting us from the University of Cardiff. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, it's great to be here. Okay, so I should explain at this point, for the benefit of the listeners, that me and Connor are old friends. We did undergrad together at the University of Sussex. Good days, good days. Yeah, but we're not here to regale you with those stories this morning. There's a lot of them we could go through. That's a whole different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I'm trying to think of a good title, but one doesn't spring to mind. So what have you been up to since then? So since Sussex, I have moved to Cardiff to do my PhD. Uh, I am now entering my fourth year, which is still terrifying to say. I have six months left on it, even more terrifying. And I've just been busy focusing on my research. And my research focuses on the largest structures in the universe, known as galaxy clusters. So what exactly are these galaxy clusters that you've been looking at? So galaxy clusters are some of the largest structures in the universe. So when you have a galaxy, you have a dark matter halo... And that dark matter halo has lots of gas and dust and stars and stuff, and that's a galaxy. Galaxy cluster is essentially that, but a much larger scale. The dark matter halo is huge, one of the most massive objects in the universe. And instead of having gas and dust in the halo, you have galaxies. So these galaxy clusters are could weigh 10 to the 15 solar masses, which is like a billion, 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 billion kilograms. Um, and they can be home to thousands and thousands of galaxies. So they're the perfect environment to test so many different things. You can test cosmology, you can look at gravitational lensing, you can study galaxy evolution. They're really useful things. Yeah, so they are useful laboratories for us in those Very, senses. very useful. So you've been up here in Manchester at the Alma Node I have, yes. this week. So what's brought you here? So my supervisor, Steve Hills has some ALMA data of a cluster. Well, actually, it's a proto-cluster. There's a slight difference. I'll, I'll get into that later. And basically, I'm not experienced with ALMA data because it's uh, it's very difficult. It's very complicated. And you need just to do a whole degree just to understand how to use ALMA and how to produce the data. But luckily, there are lots of really good experts up here. For example, George Bendo, who's a legend. And he's been helping me reduce my data, getting into a good standard, and trying to re- extract the data we're interested in. So what is the data that you're interested in, in this instance? So we are looking for the CO transition lines. So galaxies contain lots of gas, and this gas is molecular hydrogen. However, molecular hydrogen you cannot detect for quantum mechanical reasons. So what you do is you use a tracer. In this case, it's CO. So basically, you try and find CO spectral lines in your data, and from that you can tell many things about the galaxy. The one we're most interested in is the redshift of the galaxy, i.e. how far back in the universe's history is that galaxy. So you've mentioned that galaxies contain a lot of hydrogen, which obviously they do. If we've got so much of the stuff there, why can't you use that as your tracer instead? So... Molecular hydrogen is basically two hydrogens stuck together, and this creates a thing called a dipole. Now, dipoles are very... I'm not an expert on the exact science, but basically, they don't have any rotational transitional lines. So basically, if you have something like CO, for example, that's a carbon and oxygen stuck together, the, the carbon is bigger than the oxygen, so you have an asymmetry, which allows for emission of spectral lines. Molecular hydrogen doesn't do that. It's a symmetrical particle, so it has no dipole moment and you get no emission. So when you say spectral lines, yes. 
For the work that I do, I'm used to considering spectral lines in the optical and the near-infrared. Yeah. But I take it you're not looking at those wavelengths. No. So I focus on submillimeter wavelengths. Now, these are wavelengths considered anything from about 0.1 millimeter all the way up to 1 millimeter. And these are very crucial wavelengths because they allow us to probe a galaxy when optical wavelengths can't because of dust. So this dust would obscure the lines in this case. So dust is a pain for astronomers. And dust takes the optical light, absorbs it, and we emit it as infrared light. So if we want to, say, example, look at the whole galaxy, say for example we want to look at the star formation rate, so how many stars are forming every year, just looking at the optical wavelengths, you can't get the full picture. You need to look at the submillimeter and the far infrared to understand fully what's happening. So are you expecting to see star formation or anything particularly special in this cluster that you've targeted? We hope so. So something else we're looking at is a, thing, it's a type of galaxy called a submillimeter galaxy. Now these galaxies are very high abundance in the high redshift universe and these are very actively star forming galaxies. So hopefully we should be able to detect high star formation rates in these galaxies I'm trying to look at. So how high is high redshift in this case? So this cluster, so we don't actually know the redshift of this cluster I'm working on. That's one of the reasons we want the spectral lines. But based on the photometry of the data, i.e. the images we have, we estimate the redshift to be about, about redshift 4, which... Is a look back time of about 11, 12 billion years ago. Okay, so pretty early in the universe's so history. Very then. early in the universe's history, yes. So it's uh, quite a challenge to actually observe this stuff. I've just got in my notes here blobs, which you mentioned to me on Monday. <laughs> yes, so. Can you tell me about blobs. I can tell you about blobs. So, one of the big problems with submillimeter astronomy is resolution. So, if you think back to optics or something, the resolution you can achieve, so basically how well can you resolve individual objects, depends on the wavelength and how big a telescope is. So if you have a very big telescope and a very small wavelength, for example, think about Hubble, that has a two and a half meter dish and looks at wavelengths of about 500 nanometers, you can achieve really good resolution. We're talking fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a degree. However, when you get to submillimeter wavelengths, you're talking 0.1 millimeter, 0.2 millimeters. The dishes aren't that big. The biggest submillimeter telescope is the JCMT, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, which is 15 minutes. And even then, you're only getting 0.1 degree, 0.01 degrees, if you're lucky. So when you observe these galaxies at submillimeter wavelengths, your resolution isn't good enough to resolve any features. So you get a blob. So what consequences does that then have for you as a researcher trying to understand these objects? So the biggest issue is you only have global properties of a galaxy. If you have a nearby galaxy, you can understand a lot about, like, for example, how is it rotating? Where is star formation happening? Is it happening in certain areas of a galaxy or all over it? Uh, all these sort of stuff you can see in a local galaxy that's resolved. At high redshift, you have one blob, which is a, could be a couple of pixels in your image, so you can't make any assumptions on the local structure. You have to be like, well, that's forming X amount of stars a year, and that's all we really know. So you can't say it's forming X amount of stars per year in these regions? Yes, that's impossible to say. Mm. You can get around that fact with gravitational lensing. So if we have a massive body in front of a faraway galaxy, that massive body will magnify the high redshift galaxy, and you can get more detail, but that's incredibly difficult to model, and people have spent their whole lives trying to get it to work, and it's still a bit iffy, but mm. we have to deal with blobs for now. So you haven't got that case with the proto-galaxy that you're observing right now? So we still have blobs, mm. but because ALM is an interferometer, as I said, the big issue with resolution is if you have a single dish, you're limited by the resolution. Alma's an interferometer, so you have multiple dishes. And when you have multiple dishes staring at one object, that simulates one giant dish. So you can achieve much better resolution 
there are some sacrifices you have to make. For example, you lose some structure and stuff. But for the most part, you get the resolution you need. So with our galaxies, because this protocluster was discovered in Herschel images, Herschel has a really poor resolution. When you look at the Herschel images, it's just giant blobs. With the ALMA images, we hope that because we have a high resolution because of the interferometer, we hope that those blobs start to break down into individual objects that we can start to resolve. And if we can detect them, we can get a better understanding of the cluster and how it's behaving. So do you maybe want to talk a little bit about your paper at this point? So back in April, I published my first paper. Congratulations, well done. I know, it was a, it was an ordeal, but the referee was happy, so we did it. So when you look at a galaxy cluster in the local universe, say for example the Virgo cluster or Thornax, when you look at the distribution of galaxies, you see that clusters are dominated by very red, very elliptical and non-star forming galaxies. These are known as red and dead galaxies. And it's believed that these are the end point of galaxy evolution. So you start off with a lovely spiral galaxy, form lots of stars, very blue, and you evolve, 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 evolve into a featureless blob that's very red and, let's face it, not doing much. It's, as I said, in the local universe, clusters are dominated by these red and dead galaxies. But obviously, at some point in time, as you go back further and further, these elliptical galaxies had been star forming at some point. It makes logical sense. So what I do is I look at high redshift clusters. In this case, it's a redshift 2 cluster, which is a look back time of about 9 billion years. And basically, I use sublimated images from the Scuba 2 instrument on the James Clark Maxwell telescope. And basically, I try and see, are there any star-forming galaxies in this cluster? And turns out there is. There's a lot of star-forming galaxies. And this is very important for several reasons. The first one is, we believe that these elliptical galaxies, the progenitor to these elliptical galaxies, are the sublimated galaxies I mentioned earlier. And if we detect submillimeter galaxies in a cluster of high redshift, this essentially confirms this theory because those galaxies are going to evolve into an elliptical galaxy, thus showing that submillimeter galaxies are the progenitors to elliptical galaxies. The other thing is it allows us to understand galaxy evolution. So galaxy evolution is still a bit of a mystery. We don't really understand what's happening. And there are certain effects that can essentially speed up galaxy evolution. For example, in the cluster, clusters are filled with very hot X-ray gas because of the dark matter halo is so big. As gas falls into it, that gas heats up and it gets so hot it emits X-rays. So if this hot if you have a galaxy full of cold gas and that meets the hot gas in the cluster, many many things can happen. Stuff like ram pressure stripping where the gas gets ripped out. You have uh, tidal interactions where galaxies orbit each other and cause gravitational instabilities in each other and many other things can happen. So if we look at high redshift and be like, well these are all star forming galaxies and we look at a slightly lower redshift cluster, it's like, these are all elliptical galaxies, we can be like, well, something must be happening in the middle and we can put time constraints on those processes and be like, well this takes X amount of years to happen, that can't be happening. This takes blah amount of years, and we can piece everything together to try and understand how galaxy evolution works. So you can infer a timescale for it? Yes, exactly. And so then this is all with the submillimeter tracers that you yes. mentioned earlier with yes. the helmet data? Yeah. And submillimeter actually has another advantage I completely forgot to mention, is that when you have optical wavelengths, if you have a very high resolution object, as the light comes to you, that light begins to dim. And so when you have, say for example, optical... When the light actually reaches you, it's a lot dimmer, and you have to have a long integration time to detect it. Submillimeter doesn't actually suffer from that problem. As you go to longer and longer wavelengths, your source will have the same brightness. So you can do a lot lot less integration time, but still achieve the same brightness. So it's actually really useful. One other question I should have asked a bit earlier. Are there any other traces that you can use besides CO? So you can try and do optical spectroscopy on these galaxies, but it would take many, many, many hours, and I don't think any TAC would appreciate going to say, can I use Hubble for 500 hours, please? You'd probably get laughed out the door. So CO is really the only tracer we can use. I, I suppose I should say, for the benefit of the listeners at this point, is that 
The TAC is the Time Allocation yeah. Committee. So with all of that coming together, I, I assume that the write-up is in progress. <laughs> Having not heard, we don't talk about the T word. So yeah, so my thesis is slowly coming together. But um, yes, I, I'm, I should be finished within the next six months, which is terrifying. <laughs> but I think it'll be fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be. Yeah. I'm not too worried. So do you have any thoughts about where you might go next? Do you think you might stay in academia? I don't plan on staying in academia. I personally just don't feel it's the best fit for me. I'm just going to keep my options open. I've started applying for jobs so far. Probably, you know, data analyst, data science, those sort of fields. Mm. So, yeah, that's going to be my fun job for the next few months. If anyone out there wants to hire me, you know, I'm great. (laughs) I suspect that's where I will go as well if academia doesn't work out for whatever reason. You'll be fine. Yeah, there is a life after astronomy. There really is. People, PhD students, you don't have to stay in academia. I guess that feels like a good place to leave it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Well, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks for that, Jake. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Start us off this week talking about the detection of strontium uh, in uh, a neutron star merger event. So on, on the 23rd of October, a paper was published in the journal Nature which announced the detection of strontium which was produced in the merger of two neutron stars. The gravitational wave signature of which you might remember being detected back in 2016. Uh, this was the fifth event detected by a gravitational wave so far. Uh, and it was the only one with a visible counterpart that was observed by Earth-based instruments. Besides producing gravitational waves, a neutron star merger produces light across a broad range of the electromagnetic spectrum. And this is referred to as a kilonova. And in the weeks following the 2017 kilonova, now called GW170817, the spectrograph mounted on the Very Large Telescope in Chile took the best spectra yet of any kilonova. Uh, now, without going into too much details, a reanalysis of the spectral data delivered proof that uh, of strontium being produced in the merger. This is more significant than it may seem at first. And that's because it's evidence of something called the R process by which heavy elements are thought to be created in stars. Now we know that elements up to iron are created by fusion in the center of stars and heavier elements can only be explained by a series of nuclear reactions called nucleosynthesis. Now around half the elements heavier than iron uh, are created in the so-called S process and P process. P process is proton capture, uh, and it involves, as the name would suggest, an atom capturing a free proton, uh, resulting in a, a heavier element that's fairly rare and accounts for a very small proportion of the heavier elements. The S process, or slow neutron capture, is much more prolific, and it requires pre-existing heavy isotopes as seed nuclei to be converted into other heavy nuclei by a slow sequence of capture-free neutrons. This can take place in ordinary stars where you need one neutron capture every 10 to 100 years in order to sustain the series of nuclear reactions in, in the S process. But in order to create those heavy seed isotopes in the first place, you need the R process, uh, or the rapid neutron capture which involves 100 captures per second. So together, the S, P, and R processes account for nearly all atoms in the universe heavier than iron. But the big mystery has been figuring out where the physical setting required for the R process could exist. Uh, This takes an extremely high energy environment with a massive number of neutrons. Uh, So it's obvious why a neutron star merger might be a prime candidate for that. Now, this particular neutron star merger blew away an expanding shell of debris moving at up to 30% of the speed of light, uh, which means that in one second, more than a 1,000 neutrons passed through an area uh, of around a square centimeter. 
and as we know, this process radiated optical light for about a week. Um, and the duration, such a long duration of luminosity would not be possible without heating by the internal radio radioactive decay. So this provides evidence for the R process nuclei being near their waiting points. So evidently, as the blast proceeded, heavy elements were being created, including five Earth masses of strontium alone. Strontium has a particularly strong spectrographic feature at a wavelength about 800 nanometers, uh, which is why its signature is the one that was detected. Uh, so this discovery, uh, it suggests that a large fraction of heavy elements are in fact creating neutron star mergers. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, current astrophysical models suggest that a single neutron star merger event could generate as much as 3 to 13 Earth masses of gold. It is also, incidentally, a confirmation that neutron stars are made of neutrons. Which, you know, frankly, would be embarrassing if the opposite turned out to be true. So what was left after this merger? So this is quite an energetic event. So... I mean, previously we've seen mergers of black holes into black holes, which just form a bigger black hole. So this neutron star merger, does that form a black hole as well? Or? You know, I don't know about this one in particular. I know that there was the kilonova, the visible signature that was detected all the way from um, visible to X-rays as well. Um, and that lasted for about a week. Um, I don't know if we can say for certain what remained afterwards, but I would imagine that it was probably a black hole, right? Just based on the mass masses of the uh, objects, compact objects involved, but I don't know exactly how we would tell what would be remaining afterwards. Uh, and now we move on to Rocker for uh, his odds and ends. Voyager two reached interstellar space on November fifth, joining its twin spacecraft Voyager one, which crossed this boundary back in twenty twelve. They are both 42 years into their flights and still relay data back to Earth daily. Voyager 2 is now at a distance of 120 astronomical units, or 120 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. This marks the crossing point to interstellar space, which is defined by where the solar wind and the interstellar wind are in balance. This rather sharp boundary is also known as the heliopause, and the crescent was confirmed by onboard instruments which measured the change in the plasma density between the hot, lower-density plasma of the solar wind to the cool, higher-density plasma of interstellar space. Each budgetary spacecraft was launched in a different direction away from the Sun, so scientists can use this data to measure the shape of the heliopause. And so far, the data confirms that the heliosphere is strikingly symmetric, at least for the two points where the Voyager spacecraft cross. Right, so have both crossed the heliopause, is yeah. that right? Uh, and at more or less the same time? Um, so Voyager 1 did it seven years ago. Seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, on a, on a cosmic scale, that's pretty symmetric, right? Then it's pretty extraordinary that it's so close. The interesting thing is that uh, the, the heliopause really has a bullet shape. And so both the spacecraft were launched towards the uh, more circular uh, part of the heliopause. And the distance at which they found this boundary only differs by about three astronomical units, which given their distance of 120 astronomical units is very, very symmetric. Yes, indeed. Um, so what kind of measurements did they send back from heliopause? Just kind of temperatures, what I read. So they have instruments on board, and the, the main thing they measure is the density of the plasma. Right. Um, yeah. So where now? Just on into interstellar space? So are we expecting any more sort of, I guess, interesting results, for want of a better word? So sort of well, across the heliopause now, so we've seen the change in plasma density, but is there anything more we can expect as they continue on? Or... Well, I'm... <laughs> I know that the, uh, the spacecrafts themselves are estimated to have another five years in them of energy left before yep. the, the in instruments stop working. Uh, so I guess uh, whatever science they have planned between now and them shutting off will not be long-term kind of measurements. That's as much as I know about what they're planning. 
yeah, no, it definitely will be interesting to see if there's anything else that comes comes out of it. I I mean, now that they've crossed into the interstellar medium, they can maybe do some more detailed measurements of, yeah. of kind of density profiles of the interstellar medium, I guess. In any case, since they were launched 42 years ago, it will be a long time before a new spacecraft can reach their distance. Right, yeah. Uh, do we know of any plans to launch similar? Not that I know, no. Uh, I suppose the Deep Horizon spacecraft is sort of trundling out in that direction. All right. Um, I mean, that's, that, if I've got it right, that's the one that's all Pluto. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. So yeah. that's going off. In, still, I suppose it's quite far from the uh, heliopause, but it's certainly out past Pluto and sort of trundling off into the uh, into the unknown. Yeah. So. It, do we know if it's in the same direction as the voyages were? If, if they're probing the same region of the heliopause or then more headed towards the tail end of the bullet as it were not sure about that one but they do depend on gravity assists on the position of where in which direction they can um, maximize the highest point in their orbit very much depends on where jupiter is so likely they're not facing the same direction Um, in the case of Voyager one and two they were launched at, at the same in the same wick in 1977 so that's why they both ended up going more or less in the same direction. Right. Are, are they moving in the plane of the solar system? I'm trying to imagine. I guess they must be if they've got gravity assists. Yes, yes, right, of course. Oh, close enough. Uh, so we can move on to CRISPR. Uh, yes, so this is a little bit more news on the uh, spacefaring side of things. So Boeing and SpaceX are both currently completing crucial tests on their crew capsules. Uh, So on Monday, which is the 4th, Monday the 4th of November, uh, Boeing's CST-100 Starliner completed a pad abort test. And this is where they test the systems to get the crew crew capsule away from the launch pad if things start to go wrong. So according to the, uh, the article I was reading, it can accelerate away at up to 650 miles per hour in five seconds which sounds a lot, but really only translates to about 6G. Uh, to put that in context, the Saturn V uh, rocket, so that's the moon rocket for the Apollo 11 mission, uh, and the most, I think it's the most powerful machine ever built still. Um, so that, acceler- that accelerated at about 2G uh, at launch. Uh, the space shuttle, I think, went up to about 3G maximum acceleration. So... Uh, and the human body can cope with, I think I was reading up to about 20G for, it said sustained amount of time, but really only about 20 seconds, I think, was the uh, the limit. Um, so, so yes, this capsule, capsule passed the test. However, it only deployed two of its three parachutes. Uh, it still passed the test, though, because according to NASA's testing standards, this is fine. Uh, SpaceX, they did slightly better. Uh, on Sunday the 3rd, they ran, well, they ran the 13th of 13 consecutive successful tests of their upgraded parachutes on the Crew Dragon capsule. Uh, so it only needed 10 to pass. So this capsule has four parachutes, and these tests really check that the capsule can still land safely if only three out of the four uh, deploy. So they intentionally disabled the fourth, and obviously that, that went well. So... Both capsules can hold up to seven astronauts, and each company has already selected and trained three astronauts for their maiden crew flights. And this could happen as early as next year, if everything goes to plan. So, fingers crossed for a new manned space mission uh, launching from the US in the near future. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been reading a bit about this. Uh, I saw that they were, uh, they've been having a lot of problems with parachutes in particular. It seemed because, um, Originally, the, the the crewed flights were planned for 2017, I believe, already. Uh, yes, the, yeah, the SpaceX one. Um, so I think I, I don't know about 2017, but there was one scheduled for May this year. Right. But in April, uh, the test capsule blew up on the launch pad. Unfortunately, yes, uh, I believe that was due to a, some fuel leakage. So obviously, the manned flight was was scrapped. But it has already completed an unmanned flight to the space station. I think that was last year, 2018. Yes. Um, so they're certainly approaching manned, uh, manned flight, which is which is quite exciting for a private space company. Yeah. No, that, that's really interesting, but uh, just because um, the, 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 
the contracts that uh, these two companies are involved with was signed back in 2014. They're both multi-billion dollar contracts for um, sending crewed flights uh, between the U.S. and uh, the ISS, because at the moment NASA is um, sending its crew up from Russia, uh, so it's a big expenditure. Um, and yeah, it's been ex- the the crewed flights have been expected um, a while back already, but because of issues with the parachutes, there's been quite significant delays. It's quite interesting. It seems like uh, they've had to develop or try to develop new materials as well for the for the parachutes themselves yeah so these these are the upgraded uh, the mark three parachutes on the spacex capsule they've got a new polymer uh forming the the cables or the the um i don't know what you call it the parachute shrouds i guess which is much stronger and and hopefully well better than the old ones yeah so they've been developing new materials for for the parachutes and i guess 2020 is a pretty Ambitious goal. If they're only testing the emergency systems now, you have to wonder if the early 2024 actual crewed flights is realistic. I don't know. I guess they'll they'll, they'll know better about that than (laughs) I do. But uh, one would hope. Yes. I guess this is great for commercial space missions, Um, but a lot of people are concerned that. It could take the expertise away from public hands, and we would enter an era where only missions that turn up profit are encouraged. So what do you think of that? Yeah, that, that's been uh, an area of talk uh, for the Jodcast um, quite recently. Quite a lot. We've gone into SpaceX's um, plans for to put satellites in low Earth orbit as well. So. Th- yeah, they seem to have, in particular, uh, they have, they seem to have very ambitious plans for space travel and space science that would affect our science a lot uh, in the future. It's, uh, putting it politely. Yes. So, uh, and it is worrying that the kind of vision for the future does seem to be one in which all, all things to do with space is privatized and monopolized so yeah but but on the same on the same level it's not just spacex um amazon has uh similar plans for low earth orbit satellites and that kind of things and I, i'm not sure but i believe that they have a, a launch uh, program as well blue horizon yes something like that um so it, it certainly seems like the trend is for private companies to be taking up uh, the kind of mantle on this, and I'm I'm not enthused by that. I don't know anybody who is. No, <laughs> um, but I'm not sure that there's anything that we can do about that. And now, through the miracle of pre-recorded media, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for November 2019. Well, it gets dark quite early now. As it does so, if you look over above the western horizon, you'll still see the stars that make up the constellations of Cygnus and Lyra, with their bright stars Deneb and Vega. They've been around for a long time now. Moving over towards the southwest is the great square of Pegasus, the upside-down ringed horse. If you start at the top left-hand star of the square, it's called Alpha Rats, it's actually Alpha Andromedae, and move left one star, fork right a little bit to the second bright star, and then 90 degrees right to a further star, and the same distance beyond that star, on a dark, clear night, you should see a fuzzy blob. And that's the nebula in Andromeda, the Andromeda galaxy M31. It's the nearest giant galaxy to us, the largest in our local group of galaxies. Above it, is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And that gives you another way of finding Andromeda. The lower right V basically points towards it. So you just start at that V, follow your eyes down with binoculars, and hopefully it'll be visible. 
Well, the winter sky is beginning to come across us. And now, if we look towards the southeast, we will see the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the two lovely open clusters, the larger Hyades cluster and the beautiful Pleiades cluster. In the Hyades cluster, you actually will see a rather orange-red star. It's called Aldebaran. It's actually not part of the cluster. It's, it's a red giant, and it's about halfway between us and uh, the Hyades. And then, rising over in the east, is that wonderful constellation of Orion the Hunter, and looking a little bit to the northeast is the constellation of Gemini. And I'll come to one or two things in the sky to look for in the highlights of the month. Well, what about the planets? Jupiter has been in our skies for some time now, and it's still visible low in the southwest as darkness falls. On the 1st of November, it shines at magnitude minus 1.9, which falls a little to minus 1.8 during the month. The angular size drops slightly from 33.4 to 32.1 arc seconds, but sadly by the end of the month will be lost in the sun's glare. It lies in the southeastern part of Ophiuchus, is heading towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic. So as it appears in the twilight, it will only have an elevation of about 8 degrees. With its low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will certainly take its toll. But you should be able to spot the four Galilean moons, at least some of them anyway. Well, Saturn is still better visible. It's seen just west of south as darkness falls at the start of November. Then its disk is 16 arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still at about 25 degrees to the line of sight, nicely tilted, and they span some 39 arc seconds across. During the month, its brightness remains at about plus 0.6, while the angular size drops slightly to 15.4 arc seconds. Again, now in Sagittarius and lying on the southwestern side of the Milky Way, it's at the lowest point of the ecliptic, and will only reach an elevation of about 13 degrees when highest in the sky. Now Mercury. Well, we have a highlight this month. The transit of Mercury I'll come to later on. But following its transit on the 11th, Mercury rises rapidly into the pre-dawn sky, increasing in brightness by about half a magnitude each day, and rising about seven minutes earlier as the days progress. Those rates slow down until Mercury reaches greatest western elongation, some 20 degrees in angle from the Sun, on the 28th of the month. By then, it will have brightened to magnitude minus 0.5, and will rise one and a quarter hours before the Sun, and will have an elevation of about 11 degrees above the horizon before being lost in the Sun's glare. So, quite a good time to look for Mercury late in the month. Now, Mars... Well, it passed behind the Sun, that superior conjunction, on September the 2nd, and can now be seen in the pre-dawn sky at the start of its new apparition. It might just be glimpsed just south of east at the start of the month, but will then only have an elevation of about 11 degrees at sunrise. Then, binoculars could well be needed to spot its 1.8th magnitude, 3.7 arc-second disk, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. However, by the end of the month, Mars rises some two and a half hours before the sun, remaining at magnitude minus 2.8. But its disk is still less than four arc seconds across, so nothing will be glimpsed on its sort of salmon pink surface. Well, Venus may just be glimpsed in the west-southwest, setting an hour after the sun at the start of the month, but will be difficult to spot due to the fact that the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon, and so Venus will have a very low elevation. By month's end, the sun sets just before 4pm, and Venus an hour and a quarter later, but will still only have an elevation of about 6 degrees as darkness falls. Its magnitude remains at about minus 3.8, and its almost fully illuminated disk is 11 arc seconds across. Again, binoculars and a very low horizon will be need to spot Venus, but please, again, do not use them until after the sun has set. So finally, what about the highlights? Well, it's still a good chance to observe Saturn. It's now at a low elevation of about 13 degrees 
just west of south as darkness falls, lying above the teapot of Sagittarius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with a magnification of 25 or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture, with a magnification of about times 200, coupled with a night of good seeing, and that's when the atmosphere is calm, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system to its full glory. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible on a steady night in a telescope of four or more inches aperture. Lying within the B-rim, but far less bright and difficult to see, is the C or crepe ring. Now, in late evening in November, a nice chance to look at the double cluster and the Deban star Algol in Perseus. If you look up towards the constellation of Cassiopeia and follow down to its left, you come to Perseus. Just on the border of the two is a rather lovely double cluster, two open clusters close together, very nice to see in a small telescope. Perseus contains Algol, the demon star. Algol is an eclipsing binary system, as seen in a diagram on my night sky page. Just search for night sky jodrell. Normally the pair has a steady magnitude of 2.2, but every 2.86 days this briefly drops to magnitude 3.4. Now November is a good time to find Uranus. It reached opposition on October the 28th, which means it's around due south at midnight. With a magnitude of 5.7, binoculars will easily spot it, and from a really dark sight, it might even be visible to the unaided eye. A medium aperture telescope will reveal Uranus's 3.7 arc second wide disk, showing its turquoise colour. It lies in Aries, close to the borders of Pisces and Cetus, as shown in the chart on the night sky page. On November the 1st, after sunset, a crescent moon lies between Saturn and Jupiter. So looking low in the southwest, you'll see it down to the lower right of a waxing crescent moon, while up and to its left lies Saturn. On November the 9th, before dawn, Mars at magnitude 1.76 will be seen just above Spica in Virgo at magnitude 0.95. And then on November the 11th, we have a transit of Mercury. Now, whereas in 2016, in May, I think, the whole of the transit was visible, this year the sun will have set at about 4.16pm, well before its end. First contact is at 12.35, when its disk will just impinge onto the sun's surface, with second contact at 12.37. The sun will then have an elevation of about 20 degrees, over the south-southwestern horizon. Mercury reaches the midway point of its transit at 3.19, with the sun at an elevation of just 7 degrees. But it will be lost from view long before fourth contact as it leaves the sun's surface at 6.04. Mercury's disk is just 10 arc seconds across compared to the sun's 1938 arc seconds, so a small telescope would be needed to observe it, should hopefully it be clear. Now, any observation of the sun can be dangerous unless proper precautions are taken. And, of course, under no circumstances, one should look directly at the sun. One method to observe the transit is to project an image of the sun's disk onto a white card mounted behind the telescope. And that has to have a shield to surround it, so blocking the direct sunlight falling on the card. And, of course, ensure that no one could look up towards a telescope eyepiece. A second approach is to buy a solar filter that's placed over the objective. And I always tape mine into place so it could not possibly fall off. You could also buy a sheet of Barda solar film from about 15, 16 pounds upwards. Just search for it on the, on, on the web and you could make your own solar filter. But obviously great care is needed. As the sun is at solar minimum, it's unlikely that any sunspots will be visible to be confused with Mercury. But if so, 
Mercury's disk is, will appear darker and will, of course, be moving across the Sun's surface. On November the 16th, the Moon lies in the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins. On the 22nd, Venus lies very close to Jupiter. In fact, after sunset, looking southwest, Venus will lie just two degrees below Jupiter, with Saturn high and away up to the left. And something to look for on the Moon. On November the 5th and the 18th, they're good nights to observe the Alpine Valley. Close to the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium, and towards its upper end, you should see a cleft across them called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. As shown in the image I show on the Night Sky website, a thin rill runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe, and I have to say I've never seen it, but I have photographed it. The dark crater Plato will also be visible nearby. And you may also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mons Piton, lying not far away in Mare Imbrium. This is a very interesting part of the moon. Well, we've got long nights. Let's hope we have some clear skies to observe our beautiful heavens. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesky with the night sky where you are. Welcome to November. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Liski. November is my favorite month of the year. The name of November comes from Latin meanings the ninth. It was the ninth month from the beginning of the year, which for Romans was in March. November is the time when the star cluster known as the Pleiades is visible again in the evening sky. The star cluster is linked to Halloween in the Northern Hemisphere, but here on the other side of the world, we prepare for summer. Here in New Zealand, flowers and stars unite at the horizon. Entire hills change colour due to so many wonderful flowers this time of the year and the bulk of stars in the Milky Way surrounding the horizon like a river. To be fair, most of the flowers are in fact the yellow flowers of gorse, but that's okay. And the purple ones. Which is also another introduced weed. Now, but just after sunset, the centre of the galaxy is on the west side of the sky, and you can just see the tip of Scorpius and Sagittarius. Whereas on the eastern horizon, half of Orion, or as people call it here in New Zealand, the pop, it merges from behind. And we actually just came back from Rotorua, where we kind of like enjoyed a little bit of stargazing under the beautiful dark sky from there. And we soaked in the hot poles at the Polynesian Spa. It was the best stargazing ever. Unfortunately, the etiquette at the pool said that you couldn't uh, talk very loud, so we couldn't really talk about a whole lot to do with the stars, and we certainly couldn't talk to the other tourists. We couldn't talk at all. And uh, you weren't allowed to use your phone to talk on or listen to music. Not that we would have anyway if we were talking about stars. But but that's what it says on the walls. Yeah. But but we did spot some stuff while we couldn't talk or listen or anything. We, We looked up, and here's what we saw. We spotted the planet Jupiter, still bright, moving now a little bit towards Saturn, so those two are getting a little bit closer together. Then, of course, um, Saturn, but invisible next to it, uh, we could not spot from the hot pool, Pluto. But we know it's there, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, you need a telescope for that one. Um, November is still a good time to catch up with these two amazing planets if you've not had the chance to look at them yet, but they're not as close as they were a couple of months ago, especially Jupiter. But they're still a great view, and, uh, and if you're into imaging, you can still get some great pictures of them. At the beginning of the month, Venus and Mercury are very close and are joined by Antares and Jupiter, and they make a a spectacle in the evening sky because those two get very close together. And I think it's about a degree and a quarter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, you need a good opening on the horizon to spot them in the beginning of the month. But keep an eye on Venus all throughout the month because around 9th of November, it will pass close to Antares, about four degrees from Antares. And then it will move in closer to Jupiter and Saturn, so that on the 24th of November, um, Venus will be within one and a quarter degree to Jupiter. Of course, um, Antares is not actually moving anywhere near Jupiter, because that would kind of mess up our entire solar system significantly with a star that size. Few for Um, that. You know, being anywhere near Jupiter. And given Jupiter likes uh, kicking meteorites, off out of the way, um, I'm not sure it would um, do very well against a star the size of Antares. But anyway, 
Venus will be close to Jupiter visibly in visibly, the sky. Yeah. Visibly, yeah. But it's yeah, not really in position. Yeah. It's not. And it would be so close that you could... You could fit, turn a bit four moons between them. Yeah, and hmm. that's a lot of moons. Yeah. But it's not a lot either. <laughs> it's just pull your visibly, pinky out visibly. at your arm length. And um, that's... And two it, moons will fit in your pinky. Well, of course, the rest of the solar system is visible as well. Um, Neptune and Uranus are out there as well. And Neptune's in Aquarius and Uranus is in Aries. So, you know, you get to see all the planets, except Mars. Mars is the one that's uh, Hidden. not visible at the moment. Well, shame on Mars then. Yeah, well, it's not going to hang around then too bad. <laughs> November here is called Orongo, which means the time after the Great Rain. And boy, does it rain in October. Hmm, it rains a little bit. Um, November <laughs> harbors one of the most beautiful asterisms I have ever seen. One of my favorites, uh, the Grand Canoe of Tamarereti or Te Wakao Tamarereti. And when I say it harbors, it almost really does because the asterism stretches around the horizon as the Milky Way surrounds the horizon. So it's just amazing. Um, I talked at length about this asterism. And of course, as I was saying, it's one of my favorites. You can find the full story on Milky Way Kiwi. Te Wakao Tamarereti is the story of how the stars ended up in the sky, and it's a legend from around Lake Tekapo here in New Zealand. That's in the North Island of New Zealand. Actually, the whole North Island of uh, New Zealand is the big volcano, and Lake Tekapo is like its crater. So that's how amazing it is. Um, I first heard about this legend from Frank Andrews, who used to work at Cut Observatory, and he heard it from someone who was from Lake Tekapo, and he told it to us. And later on, Tony Fisher rewrote the legend in 2008. So basically, the Milky Way is the canoe, Scorpius is the prow, Saturn Cross is the anchor, and Orion is the stern. My favorite asterism is the coat hanger because it looks like a coat hanger. It does look like a coat hanger, but you have to be in the Northern Hemisphere to see that one properly. Mm -hmm. Kind of like high up in the sky. Yeah, well, it actually looks like a coat hanger. Well, Scorpius is another asterism that looks like a... Like a question mark, like a scorpion. It certainly looks more like a question mark than a scorpion. It does, or like a fishing hook. Mm. So anyway, tell us about this asterism that so harbors anyway, so, in the harbor. So, so the Hyades and the Pleiades are in this, it's, it's 270 degrees around this, the horizon. That's how big it stretches. The coat hanger's not that big. The, no, it's actually really tiny, isn't it? Mm. Um, and you can see it with the binoculars. Mm -hmm. That's how you can see it, not with the naked eye. No. Um, as opposite to Te Tamareti, which you can see with the naked eye across the horizon, 270 degrees, and it goes from Scorpius to the Southern Cross to Orion, and then to the Hyades and to the Pleiades, because it just so happens these two are also, again, visible in the night sky. And it's spectacular. You have to kind of, like, come here and see it. But that kind of, like, has a downside as well. Because Milky Way being on the horizon, most of the stars that we're used to looking at in the Milky Way, we can't actually really see. So November can be one of those months where, unless you know where to look in the sky and what to look for, you can't really see too much. All right. It's the boring month. When it comes to astronomy in the Southern Hemisphere, if you have to pick a month that is... Well, boring is a bit unfair. It is not as interesting well, as, the, <laughs> as the other months. But the flip side is you do get to have a look at the large and the small Magellanic Clouds, which we talk about in a second. Um, the Magellanic Clouds are the great attraction on November, as I was saying, for the simple reason that most of the center of the Milky Way now is beyond the horizon or around it. So we're looking at everything through a layer of atmosphere, so we can't really see too much. And we're lucky here, actually, where we see in Wellington, is because the Magellanic Clouds are circumpolar, so they spin around the, um, the South Celestial Pole. In um, 23 hours and 56 minutes. But in November, in the evening, they're quite high. Yeah, they're high, whereas the rest of the year they've been a bit, well, the last few months have been a bit low. So we haven't been able to have a look at um, 247 or the Tarantula Nebula. But now we can. Which are amazing targets. Mm. And like even just if you take a pair of binoculars and look at the Magellanic Clouds, They're it's impressive. absolutely spectacular. Yeah. That's why astronomers are so crazy about them. Mm. Oh, and we can also see Sculptor Galaxy. So well, is, we'll talk so about no, that as well. So November isn't so bad. Is it? Well, because mm. you have Sculptor but the Galaxy Milky Way. and another galaxy, Andromeda. So you Andromeda, can see all the galaxies, the four of them. Well, you can't really see Andromeda. 
Well, you can see if we have a pair of binoculars. And like if you try it really hard, you go on top of the mountain. Mount Cook. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> so when is good time for observing? At the end of the month. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> from the top of Mount Cook. We have no. We have a new moon on the 27th of November, and you don't go observing stars on the 13th of November as the moon is full. Well, you can observe stars, but only the bright ones. Well, you can try. You can observe the moon, but that's not good either, either as it's a bit too bright when it's full. Uh, but it's still quite cool to look at if you've got no choice. Um, right. the, and filters. Yeah, yeah. So, but obviously the best time to, to observe the moon is when it's um, in, in one of its phases, not when it's at a full moon. And obviously not when it's a new moon because then you can't see it at all. Um, up in the sky, almost at the zenith, is Grus, um, which is kind of a cool um, constellation. because it's double, 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 Yeah, double. it's a whole pile of little doubles in a row. So it's pretty easy to spot. They kind of follow a bit of a curved path. Now, of course, like most of the constellations, I don't really recognise what they are, but it's a double <laughs> bunch of double stars what in a curved path. they say they are. Mm. Um, close to it is Formahelt in um, Pisces. Austrinus. Austrinus. Yeah. The Saturn Pisces. Oh, the, yeah, the version we have down here. Yeah. Um, as you look up, Formahelt and Arcanara and another star, Deneb Kytos of Which we Bruce, talked about before. Yeah, yeah, they make a triangle. And that's okay. how you can find the Sculptor Galaxy. So which... Sam is going to tell you how to find the Sculptor Galaxy, which actually talked about from the pools. Yeah, well, so what you do is you kind of make a triangle with um, Formahelt, um, Arcanara, and Deneb Kytos, which is a bit of a yellowy kind of star, kind of a bit down the sky from Formahelt. And then you sort of go from, from Deneb Kytos to Arcana, if you imagine a line, and you hold about three fingers up, um, so in that line from Deneb Kytos. Yep. Then you should see Sculptor sometime somewhere around there. And it's it's a very prominent galaxy, very easy to see from the Southern Hemisphere. Very beautiful. Well, it is still beautiful. I mean, every time we look at the sky, it's very beautiful. Now... Another thing about November is that this is the month when here in New Zealand the canoes start to navigate again. And in fact, right now, a few canoes and a replica of the Endeavour and Spirit of New Zealand are circumnavigating New Zealand as part of the Tuatu Fifty celebrations that commemorate the arrival of Captain Cook. Now, of course, Captain Cook came to this part of the world mainly to observe the transit of Venus, but also to observe the transit of Mercury. From which Mercury did, Bay. Yeah, we did at Mercury Bay and the Coromandel in the North Island of New Zealand. And what's quite interesting is he did that, I think, on the 9th of November. And this year, on the 12th of November, or the, north, or the 11th of November in the Northern Hemisphere, but in the 12th here, early in the morning, there'll be another transit of Venus. Uh, not Venus, Mercury, sorry. You're going to have to wait another 100 years for Venus. So this is quite, um, you know, almost 250 years exactly since um, James Cook. Quite a and, cool coincidence. The, yeah, and the crew in the Endeavour observed it the first time. We actually get to miss it in New Zealand this time by a little bit. But you might you might be lucky, and if you've got a really good horizon and you just catch the sun maybe, you know, half an hour after it rises... Um, according to our planetarium program, you should see Mercury just in the disk of, of the sun on the, on you know on the way out. But you still still should see a little bit of it. We'll of course miss the entire transit. Yeah, if anything else fails, just listen to Sting's song. Yeah. Mercury failing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Have you seen that transit before? Uh, yes, I saw Venus transit actually on a hole in a piece of paper. Wow. Well, the projection kind of method, which was. At work, at work through a brief bit of sun on a cloudy Wellington day. Wow. I've seen both of Venus transit and Mercury transit back in the Northern Hemisphere in 2003. Mm. And it was amazing. And it takes a long time. Like, you get to understand how long a transit takes. Yeah, well. Because I keep observing in eight hours. The orbit's pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> Going to the ecliptic, because we were there anyway, talking about all the planets that are all on the ecliptic. Just below the ecliptic is the great square of Pegasus, and um, that's riding the northern horizon, because Pegasus is a horse. So in November, we should be able to see again the brightest stars in the sky, in order Sirius, brightest star, Canopus, second brightest star. You can only see it um, from below 23 degrees latitude north, so which is why I came here to see it, because it was very <laughs> prominent visible. And Alpha Centauri, which is the third brightest star in the sky. So you can see all these three stars in order. And I love doing this. It's one of my favorite things about the sky here in the Southern Hemisphere. Because you can see these three. And bright, right? I can see the second brightest star in the sky, and you can't. <laughs> well, of course, Alpha Centauri is a... 
is a double. So you're actually looking at um, a, a headlights of a car from a long, long way away. So That's it looks like one. That's a comparison. Hmm. And they're only about, I think, five arc seconds apart at the moment, and they orbit each other on a period of about 70 years. So if you imagine that one of the pair was where the sun is, yeah. the other one would be about where Neptune is. Wow. Um, if that was our solar system. That's not too far. No, well, see, you know, they're pretty close. So, and through a decent telescope, um, well, in fact, not even that decent, but a, but a reasonably good telescope. It's more about the seeing, actually. So mm. if you've got a good seeing and you can um, spot things that are five arc seconds apart, then you'll see literally what looks like a pair of headlights, yellow headlights, <laughs> in the field of view. In the field of view, four light years away. Much like probably what a possum sees on a New Zealand road shortly before it gets smacked by a car. <laughs> but unlike the possum, we have some time to get away yeah. we from have, the road. We have about 4.3 light years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're talking about the light, right? Yeah. It's very... Um, all right, and so not only that you can see the three brightest stars in the sky, but you can also see the three brightest galaxies in order. The brightest galaxy that we can see is the Milky Way. The Milky Way. The second brightest galaxy that we can see is Sculptor. No, <laughs> we well, can't see Andromeda from here. Well, you can see unless you're on a mountain. The Magellanic Cloud. No, the Magellanic Cloud. The large Magellanic Cloud. Yeah, true. And then the small Magellanic Cloud. And then if you try really hard, you can see Andromeda. Gold sculptor is easier. But anyway, if you are standing on a mountain and you um, can see (laughs) Andromeda, which people can have and have seen from from this latitude, um, you can totally spot it in a pair of binoculars. But it's not really worth imaging because you're not going to get a pretty pretty good shot. No, because it's very low on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But still, you're looking at it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and the sun. The sun rises around 6 a.m. on the beginning of the month and sets around 8 p.m. at the end of the month. And then earlier, about 20 minutes, um, at around 5.40, and then at the end, then that's at the end of uh, the month, and then it sets 40 minutes later, respectively, so about 8.40 at night. So it's a pretty busy month, except... <laughs> Except there's <laughs> nothing in the no, sky. Except there's no Milky Way. But there is a transit of Mercury, so exciting stuff happens. That's right. So it should be quite quite good. So we wish you clear skies so that you can always see the stars and hope you have an amazing November. You'll hear from us next month. Yep, when we talk all about December. So that's bye from me. Bye from me too. And clear skies. Clear skies. Thanks for that, Harry, Tina and Sam. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. We have a YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. There's a Flickr account as well at flickr.com forward slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Connor Smith for the interview. The editors were Joseph Winnecke, Lizzie Lee, Hong Ming Tang, and Tom Scragg. And the producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.